Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to a brand new week of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're starting our seventh week of the shelter-in-place edition of the show. I continue to do the show out of our house just outside of the city of Decatur, and all of our uh, panelists continue to join us by phone from uh, most, for the most part, from their homes as well. I hope you all had a safe and healthy uh, weekend. Of course, this is the weekend that um, Georgians were once again allowed to go get their hair cut, uh, go to the beauty parlor, get their nails done, uh, go bowling if they chose to do that, and uh, all based on Governor Kemp's order that those businesses can begin operating again. Some did, more did not, and today is the day that restaurants have been given the green light to uh, go back into business. And once again, most of the businesses, uh, restaurant businesses that uh, reporters have talked to have said they really don't intend to open. On the other hand, some absolutely uh, planned to do that. Uh, the Over the weekend, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, mayor of Atlanta, was very critical of the uh, opening of uh, all of these uh, businesses again. She sent out a tweet in which she showed the number of cases, a chart with the number of cases, the number of deaths, and said, you know, if you're sitting at your manicurist right now, uh, you better show that person uh, these numbers. But meanwhile... Uh, on the other side of that, Bob Smith, who's a former state lawmaker and now the mayor of Watkinville, he, according to a note that the Jolt put out today, sent out a letter to his constituents or an email saying, I encourage you to get outdoors and exercise, go to work, earn a living, assemble to worship, be grateful for every day we have because life is a gift. Let's not waste it, continuing, sit down at home looking at four walls as those brave Americans said on Flight 91 over Pennsylvania on September 11th, 2001, let's roll. It'll be interesting to see, hear our panel as I introduce them in just a minute, respond to the comparison between 9-11 and uh, what we're experiencing right now. And finally, uh, yesterday on Meet the Press, if you were listening to the NPR newscast a minute ago, you heard uh, Dr. Deborah Burks say that she expects sheltering in place to continue through the summer despite the fact that uh, Vice President Pence the other day uh, said that he thinks by, the, um, by Memorial Day and a little after, everybody will be getting pretty much back to normal. All right, there's just the context to start our conversation uh, today. And to do that, we're joined, as we always are on Mondays and Fridays, by Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read him in the Wednesday and Sunday newspaper, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Jim, uh, in a second, I'll introduce everybody. I I want you to share with us some of the the, uh, column that you wrote yesterday, that you published yesterday, about how local officials are responding to some of what Governor Kemp is doing. We're also joined by uh, State Senator Jen Jordan, by Emory University professor Dr. Andra Gillespie, who teaches political science, as most of you know. And we're really delighted to welcome back uh, Todd Ream, uh, who is a um, political consultant, Republican consultant, a conservative voice, 
and uh, who is a publisher. How are things going with your newsletter these days, Todd? Well, uh, the first thing I would say is that my timing has changed. I no longer feel the need to get it out first thing in the morning since folks have uh, all day to uh, to spend <laughs> reading stuff on the internet. Um, and what I, you know, what I've found is that uh, people are still interested in having uh, substantive substantive discussions. The problem has been that. Um, the, the government action has changed so much from what it normally is, from what, what I normally write about, that it's, it is occasionally a struggle to find out what's going on in the outside of Metro Atlanta or outside of large newspaper markets. Um, but it's going well otherwise. Thank you. Tell everybody where they can find it. Uh, GAPundit.com. There is a newsletter sign up on the right-hand side that uh, gets – weekday content every day of the week and uh, occasionally a little bit more stuff than, than ends up on the website. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, all right. Galloway, uh, what I, I, I laid out just a little bit about where we stand right now because we continue to have this tremendous problem with mis- mixed messaging that seems to be coming from uh, certainly from Washington and to some extent from various uh, leaders, state and local in Georgia, uh, Jim, uh, with, with how do you parse right now uh, the fact that the governor today is having a, he's holding a prayer service at the state capitol, inviting uh, faith leaders to join him there. Some restaurants will be reopening uh, at the same time that the virus continues to spread, uh, and you have local leaders as you write in your column this weekend, like the mayor of Atlanta and like DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurmond, who are offering strong advice to their own constituents on how they should behave contrary to what the governor is saying. Yeah, we we, we have a a definite uh, kind of a combination, an awkward combination of mixed messaging and non-messaging. You know, uh, I, I mean, you're getting you're getting cross signals from from uh, uh, President Trump out of the White House, uh, and obviously from uh, Governor Kemp on the ground here in Georgia. But you also have ha- there is some really significant non communication that's going on. Uh, the House Democrats, uh, the state House Democrats, uh, last week kind of responded with a letter to 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 to, to Kemp when he uh, right after he announced that uh, he was going to open up. Uh, uh, kind of the the, the 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 lowest tier of, of businesses in Georgia, as, as saying it was too soon. And one one of the signatures on that was Calvin Smyre, uh, kind of the ultimate insider Democrat at the state capitol, and and uh, and a member of the cor- uh, governor's coronavirus uh, task force. And then you had you had the fact that uh, neither neither uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms nor any other kind of Georgia mayor that we've been able to find was given advance notice of, of Kemp's notice uh, of, of Kemp's uh, order and uh, and and likewise uh, Michael Thurman so that every local gov- local officials are kind of trying to scramble uh, are scrambling to find out what their what enforcement mech- uh, authority they've got to kind of to, to, to roll out this a little bit slower than maybe Kemp might want. Senator, when you hear Bob Smith of Watkinsville compare this to 
Flight 91 over Pennsylvania on September 11, saying, let's roll, let's get out there and get fully engaged in communities again. What do you make of that? Well, I think it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, the analogy is poor, period. But as we know, the people on that flight, and I don't know if it was 91 or 93, I mean, the whole point was that they perished. They kind of sacrificed themselves, um, you know, for others. So it's, it's a really kind of poor analogy. But getting back to, you know, the lack of communication, I can tell you as a member um, of the legislature, I mean, I see stuff on Twitter before it gets communicated um, from the governor's office to members of the General Assembly. And that's across the board, whether it's Republican or Democratic. Um, so there has been a real lack of kind of communicating um, with stakeholders and so that then we can be prepared to uh, communicate to those we represent. And I think that's where you're seeing a lot of communi- you know, miscommunication, lack of communication, and frustration um, on the part of elected officials. Uh, by the way, of course you're right, it's Flight 93. Uh, Watkin, uh, and I uh, repeated uh, his mistake, so thank you for making that correction. Um, Andre, we know that there uh, are, is the the health of Georgians is at stake in, in, in this uh, pandemic, and yet there is a political uh, component to it as well, which we have not spent a great deal of time talking about. So in the broadest way, um, how do we see the decisions of a governor like Kemp, President Trump, local leaders, how do we see the political calculus in all this? We know, for instance, that increasingly there's a partisan divide on how people are responding to whether we ought to reopen parts of a state or the country. Um, how do you make a broad statement, if you can, about what we're seeing in the politics of all this? It's pretty complicated. So, I mean, if we look at what people think about reopening, what people think about um, sheltering in place, um, I think we don't give enough credit to the fact that there are actually quite a few Republicans who are actually on board with the social the social distancing measures that, you know, public health experts believe are required to actually kind of quell the pandemic. And I think that that should be acknowledged, that there are loud voices that are contrary, but that a lot of people are on board uh, with this. Uh, in terms of what the politics are, this is really a question of leadership and judgment, um, and it's something where... Uh, Leaders have to make tough choices with incomplete information, and what they're trying to project is what they think the outcomes are going to be on um, on the other end of this. And so what Governor Kemp is calculating is that the pandemic isn't going to affect Georgia uh, as acutely as it did New York, for instance. And so he's going to privilege commerce over uh, uh, the public health measures that lots of Democrats sort of think need to happen. And so long as we don't see a spike in the number of diagnoses and we don't see a spike in the number of deaths, right, he's hoping that people will forgive or will forget the controversy surrounding this choice. If, however, people get sick and if we start to see a spike in the number of deaths or in the number of acute care cases after that, then this is a disastrous decision and it's going to reflect poorly on uh, Governor Kemp's leadership and that's probably going to have severe political ramifications for him going forward. You know, Todd, uh, on this show, for the past week or so, Jim Galloway, uh, me, Greg Bluestein, others, 
have have said that we understand that uh, people like Governor Kemp are facing incredible economic challenges down the line. We we can't help but sympathize with the fact they're watching uh, the state economy dissolve in front of their eyes and worry about the long-term consequences of that. That's realistic, and they do think about how they balance the health of people against the economy, which is basically what Andra just referred to right now. But but there's another calculation here as well. Uh, as you know, Todd, there was a big rally scheduled for Friday at the state capitol of uh, people who planned to descend to uh, demand that the governor open the state back up for business again. We have no reason to think those folks are anything but some of Kemp's base voters. And that rally went away after the governor made his announcement. Coincidence or not? Todd? Well, no, that's I think that's there is an exact correlation right there. Um, and that was that was the point I was going to make in the first hours. And I'm not sure how long it took um, to in, in the reaction to Governor Kemp uh, lifting some of these restrictions. Uh, it occurred to me that that one of the voices missing initially was the Georgia and Atlanta Chambers of Commerce. The first article I read after the announcement, and it was probably either Greg Bluestein or Jim, um, was talking about sort of uh, what what these restrictions had been, uh, what was lifted, and there was something to the effect that neither the Georgia nor Atlanta Chambers uh, immediately returned uh, our calls. And in the past, as recently as five or ten years ago, the Georgia Chambers would have been the, the, the only voice, I think, at one point speaking on behalf of business. Um, but now people are able to uh, congregate and, and aggregate online on Facebook. And a lot of these mom-and-pop uh, shop operators, uh, mom-and-pop uh, businesses from outside of it, Metro Atlanta were able to gain a voice. And I think at some level, Governor Kemp was was responding to those concerns that five or ten years ago he might not have been able to hear, or it would have been harder for a, for a governor to hear. Um, and, and so it, it's an it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting problem, and it highlights what I think is is one of the fundamental lessons we're going to come out of with this is that Georgia is a much more diverse place than we sometimes give it credit for. My father lives in Jefferson, uh, up I-85, and it's still primarily rural out there. And uh, in my travels between here and there, I noticed that those areas lagged significantly in uh, the adoption of face masks and stuff for transactions. And uh, But then I also remember that that county was late in getting their first cases and still lagged significantly. And so it, it's... It's interesting to see how the rest of Georgia, what a lot of us would consider, would have historically considered the rest of Georgia, but was key to Brian Kemp's political uh, victory in 2018, to see them continue to have a voice and uh, do in large part to Facebook. Jim, jump back in here. Yeah, you know, it's it's. Uh, I, I kind of agree with with Todd that what you've seen is you've you've seen kind of. Uh, uh, a diminution of of uh, the the uh, the in, uh, influence of Georgia Chamber and the Metro Chamber uh, Metro Atlanta Chamber, 
Uh, and then you have the rise of organizations like kind of like the Georgia chapter of, uh, I think it's the National Federation of Independent Businesses. Is that right, Todd? Uh, the NFIB is, is one of yeah. the organizations. Yeah. You've also got these other uh, groups where those types of folks tend to congregate, like the, the Koch organization um, that I can't think of right. the name of right off the top of my head that right. that in, in, together. If you, if you look in today's jolt down page, uh, you're going to see a, a photograph of, of uh, Governor Kemp on Friday uh, touring uh, uh, tornado damage in, um, in Adel. Uh, down down forty one uh, in South Georgia, and you know the, it, there looks to be some poor attempts at uh, 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 social distancing, but not a mask in sight. Um, Jen, uh, you're going to be facing at some point. We now think that the legislature may come back uh, by about June eleventh, and and in announcing that they're looking at that date. Um, uh, at least the speaker, I, I haven't heard whether Jeff Duncan uh, said this as well, over on the Senate side, has said this isn't about the date we can come back safely. This is about numbers. We've got to start addressing the budget and all of the choices we have to make. So, I mean, despite the concerns about reopening too soon, you are faced as a state senator with a massive, massive budget uh, crisis coming forward, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we, we know what the revenue numbers are going to be. But I also think that, um, you know, two things can be true at the same time. I think that Ralston was correct when the more data we have in terms of what the revenue numbers are actually going to look like um, is better, obviously, um, to put together a budget. But it's also true that with respect to all the modeling that June 11th is or was after the date um, that a lot of the uh, more significant models indicated that we could start kind of loosening um, a lot of the restrictions and lifting um, kind of shelter-in-place orders. Um, so, you know, I don't think it's lost on the public that the legislature um, has chosen a date that seems to be more safe for folks to come back to work while also um, swinging open kind of the business doors um, for everybody else in the state. But yeah, we, we face a really significant, um, you know, budget crunch. And, and I don't think anybody has any clue what the revenue numbers are going to look like. So if you don't mind, Jen, my putting this in personal terms for just a moment, you're one of the people who was put in a position of having to self-quarantine because on that one-day special session, you came into uh, contact uh, <clears throat> with um, uh, uh, the virus, essentially, when uh, Brandon Beach came to the uh, session. How are you feeling personally about returning? I've Just to put it in my personal context, I, for the first time yesterday in weeks, actually tried to go to a supermarket. And I walked in the door. I've been very safe, careful about it. And I have to acknowledge, I, I found the whole experience, like, pretty terrifying. I, I was nervous the whole time I was there. How are you feeling if you're asked to go back in June? You know, part of it is, is that we have to. Obviously, we have a constitutional obligation to get a budget passed. Um, but, but I am concerned. I mean, like um, Jim just pointed out, just in terms of the pictures coming out of South Georgia yesterday, I mean, there are large parts of the state where folks aren't wearing masks, um, really aren't 
taking this seriously um, for whatever reason, whether it hasn't really impacted their communities or they haven't seen it, um, so they just don't know how serious this is. I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, when you gather all the legislators from all over the state, I mean, it's going to include, you know, not only the Atlanta metro region, but also other places where, you know, folks just don't really think much about this virus. And they're going to be coming into the um, Capitol. And, um, you know, it's a little bit scary, especially since we don't have widespread yeah. testing, um, you know, to make a determination whether or not, you know, you are being exposed again to the virus. Um, okay, Andre, let's broaden this, and I want to get everybody in on this, but I'll start with you. Uh, we had a chance to talk very briefly on Friday's show about the uh, confusion over whether Governor Kemp got the go-ahead in a phone call from President Trump and Vice President Pence to, to take the steps that he did to start reopening uh, businesses slowly in Georgia— uh, and 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 then, of course, got slapped down hard by the president, not once, but over two days uh, because uh, the president said he was moving too quickly. Um, the politics of that are really fascinating, and uh, I'd like to hear you weigh in on it. Well, President Trump's personality is sometimes a little bit mercurial. So I actually am having a hard time understanding why his allies don't always understand that. They understand it on some level, right? And because you've seen this amongst uh, leftist leaders, and you've seen it even amongst task force members who tend to be very careful about what they say. Um, and even when they have to say things that kind of contradict what he says, they usually try to couch them in the most diplomatic terms possible. Um, but we've seen other places where we've seen President Trump have love-hate relationships with other Democrats. I would be cautious, usually in terms of dealing with him, in terms of how I curry favor with the president. I understand why Republicans want to make sure that they stay on his good side. But if you're going to make a tough decision, I wouldn't necessarily always look for, uh, let's say, uh, support from him, or I wouldn't assume that you're actually going to maintain support from him. And so given the fact that uh, Governor Kemp uh, was actually like pushing ahead with this reopening ahead of the state meeting phase one guidelines. And I kind of want to come back to a point about sort of how we measure and how we talk about data um, in a second, right? But given the fact that he was going to kind of come ahead um, of what the phase one guidelines were and the fact that the task force pointed this out to the president, right, he shouldn't have been surprised that he didn't maintain the support of the president. So I'm not here to judge what conversations were had behind the scenes, but I would also say with anybody who's dealing with the president, President, you know who you're dealing with. And so you might expect that he's going to turn on a dime, right? Because he's the type of person who we know usually runs with the last thing he was told. Uh, Todd, how long, what, what is this? I mean, Governor Kemp is not up for re-election for another a couple of years. So uh, that's a long time for things to change dramatically. But, but, but how do you see the base his base responding to the smackdown he got from the president and what long-term repercussions might it have on him? It, it has been uh, interesting to me to, to sort of watch the fallout from uh, what President Trump said uh, the first and second times on that in, in terms of uh, how it seems to be affecting uh, Governor Kemp. And, and you're seeing some Republicans uh, sticking with uh continuing to support uh, Governor Kemp. I haven't heard a whole lot of 
heard or read because increasingly my interactions with other people are uh, through the written word in, in some fashion. Uh, I haven't heard or read a whole lot of um, criticism of Kemp that's based just on the on President Trump coming out the second time. A lot of the, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a, a, happens, a, a somewhat happy happenstance that a lot of the people who there's a there's a large bit of overlap between the people who were pushing for reopening of parts of the Georgia economy and people who are diehard President Trump fans. And so uh, a lot of them are sort of have gotten to the point where they don't necessarily uh, supporters of, of Donald Trump don't necessarily take one thing that he says and stick with the last thing he says. Um, if if in two weeks or four weeks or six weeks or however, however long it takes to play out, it turns out that this was the right thing to do, I would imagine President Trump will have a lot of great things to say about uh, about Brian Kemp. Um, and that has a way of, of placating the, his base. Um, but you know, I, I think Brian Kemp is far more worried about the changes in in terms of the politics of uh, this year and two years from now. I think he's far more uh, concerned about the changes in um, the way in the voting procedures, the changes in that that may cause in the electorate than in the last thing that President Trump said about him. Yeah. And so, Jim, to- where does this. Well, go ahead, Jen. Go ahead, Jen. Yeah, just to jump on what Todd was saying. I mean, but I think this is what we see in terms of the mixed messaging coming out of the White House. I mean, you have one day where um, the president is saying it's time to reopen everything and and get back to work, and then the next day he's jumping on um, Governor Kemp for announcing that he's going to reopen Georgia. And so I think Todd's exactly right that, you know, and going back to what was said earlier is that this is really kind of a gamble, that – you know, the numbers aren't going to be as bad as New York, that um, we're not going to see another spike in deaths or cases. And if that happens, then, you know, I'm sure that Trump will take credit for that and laud Kemp, um, you know, getting people back to work. And then if it has the opposite effect, um, he'll claim that he knew that all the time and point to, you know, when he attacked Kemp for reopening Georgia. It's really about being able to kind of take you know, to straddle the fence and take either position based on exactly what's going to roll out politically. Okay, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. But when we come back, I want to continue this part of the conversation and talk about how it might affect uh, uh, down-ballot races in 2020. And we'll do that uh, when we continue Political Rewind in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back uh, with State Senator Jen Jordan, uh, conservative Republican uh, uh, consultant and also editor of uh, Georgia Pundit, uh, Todd Ream. Uh, 
Andre Gillespie, Dr. Andre Gillespie, Emory University, and, of course, Jim Galloway of the AJC. Before we continue, one quick note. We mentioned at the top of the show that Governor Kemp is going to have a news conference this afternoon. We expect it'll start at about 4.30. He, by all reports, he is expected to announce whether he is going to renew the shelter-in-place order, which I think expires at the end of the day on Thursday. You can listen to it on GPB Radio or watch it at gpb.org at about 4.30 this afternoon. Uh, Jim Galloway, just really quickly, because I, I don't know if we have any way of calculating this, but if, if there's a dispute right now, it was interesting to hear uh, 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 the comments from everybody on the panel that there's not necessarily any long-term damage to Brian Kemp for what uh, the way Trump has uh, treated him the last few days. But where does it put Kelly Leffler? It, it feels like she's kind of caught between the guy who appointed her and the guy whose favor she really needs to curry. She, she's kind of the poster child for everyone, uh, uh, every down ballot Republican in the state, I, I think, yeah. Uh, yeah. because because look, I mean, what was I found most interesting was that and 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 yes, we we need to focus on the dispute between Kemp and 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 Trump on on the on the uh, on the reopening of the economy, but but I would also throw in the 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 the, uh, the disinfectant injection gaffe here. That, I think, was a real moment for Republicans last week, where they had to choose between loyalty to Donald Trump and loyalty to some absolutely important facts. And and what, I, what I've been struck by is the kind of the the absolute silence that it's put on the uh, on a lot of Republicans, including Leffler. I mean, you haven't you haven't seen you haven't seen uh, uh, reporters or uh, 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 candidates engage uh, on 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 the Trump tift vis a vis the pandemic. And I think the 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 the, the, the disinfectant has something to do with that. You see you see Ralston Ralston very very. Uh, clearly, wa- not wanting to step between those two 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 men, and I, I just I just find this this fascinating because in the weeks c- leading up to this, you'll you'll recall that we had we had congressional candidates in the ninth, the fourteenth, uh, and the seventh district Republican candidates who were siding with Doug Collins against Leffler. Uh, which is really unusual because you have uh, you don't you don't you don't tick off a governor like that, but. But those voices have, have pretty much gone silent right now. Andra, how do you see all this affecting down-ballot races? So, for instance, in, in the Senate, we know that in Senate races in other states, um, Democratic candidates in Kentucky, in Colorado, in New Hampshire, um, the latest fundraising totals, and, the, and North Carolina are outraising their Republican opponents, in many cases incumbents, by, by wide margins um, are we going to see the same sort of thing unfold here as uh, we get uh, beyond the primaries, do you imagine? I think we also have to look at sort of like how we would measure that. So you can measure that in terms of wins and losses, but you can also measure that in terms of margins as well. And so if races become more competitive um, in states where they shouldn't have been competitive, I would actually also interpret that as some movement. But I think sort of kind of coming back to Jim's point about 
the disinfectant comment. That could actually, uh, we would have, don't know yet. We have to wait to see what the data looks like. But I think the big question from this is what does this say overall sort of about perceptions of Republican Party leadership, especially if you think that the Republican Party really is defined as the party of Trump. And so if people have lost confidence in President Trump, and not everybody has, uh, based on the data that we have now, then you could see that that could have some down-ballot effects, that uh, uh, Republicans who, for better or worse, are tied to Trump could also fare, uh, you know, sort of in alignment with how uh, people perceive President Trump. But I think the place where members of Congress in particular have some agency, even though, like, sort of the general national mood and the general national perception of the party you know, is very predictive in, you know, predicting wave elections, for instance, if one party kind of gets swept out of power. But I think the place where Republicans in particular have control is in their response to the issue, and, and in particular how they are responding to um, and um, are pegged with ownership of, uh, let's say, the, the stimulus packages that are coming out of Congress. So if you are, you know, looking at somebody like a Mitch McConnell, for instance, who's hinting that he doesn't want to provide um, aid to state governments, you know, who are now strapped because of all of the unemployment benefits and everything else that they're having to do with this pandemic, right? People who uh, look like they're aligned with Mitch McConnell might not actually fare all that well. If people are voting against stimulus packages at a time where we're seeing record unemployment rates, right, that makes people look heartless. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a talking point that, that an opponent can use against them. So I would say, you know, part of it is, you know, do you want to be tied to Donald Trump and his erratic behavior? Uh, but then also, like, what decisions are you making in your own office that actually could reflect poorly on you and perceptions of your own kind of compassion and willingness to, to make tough choices in a, in a difficult time? Todd and Jen, I want to get you to both of you involved in reacting to that to the extent you want to. But let me add one more layer because Andra just mentioned it. Uh, we now have both Republican and Democratic governors across the country. Uh, we haven't heard this from Governor Kemp yet, uh, but we have governors saying they need financial help from the federal government. Uh, House Democrats in Washington want to make the next package, financial rescue package, about state and local government funding. Uh, and as Ander points out, uh, Todd, uh, Majority Leader McConnell uh, last week, when asked if he would support that, said, no, I think they should declare bankruptcy. Uh, that, that's going to be interesting to see how that plays in his own state, Todd, in his reelection campaign in Kentucky. Uh, but as Andre points out, it's also another defining sort of moment for Republicans in a 2020 election cycle, isn't it? Well, I, I don't think that uh, Republicans in within the electorate have become any more sympathetic towards uh, state and local government than they than they were before this all started. Um, you know, it, and so I don't think that's going to cause a Trump-supporting uh, red meat Republican to say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm worried about whether my county's going to get enough uh, federal money this year. I, I don't think that's, that, does, that doesn't, as a political consultant, somebody looking at how do we win elections uh, this year, that, that doesn't phase me as much. Um, you were talking about the politics of it. I, I think part and parcel of how the uh, – the president, uh, the presidential election, all of that stuff plays out at the down ballot level 
it all comes back down to turnout. And that's the lesson that we have learned uh, from 2014, 2016, 2018, is that it's all turnout, turnout, turnout these days. Um, And so the changes in our voting procedure and how that plays with the rise of – you know, non-metro voters, the rise of uh, non-traditional voters within the electorate, um, the rise of folks who previously hadn't voted um, as factors in the election. That That's a much more uh, difficult thing to chew on. How do we as Republicans who have in some ways fought against opening up mail-in uh, ballot, absentee balloting, how do we make the most of those very voters that we've been trashing mail-in balloting and, you know, it's it's not safe, people can steal your votes, all that stuff. How do we turn them out to vote in that way? The other thing is that what's going to be interesting to see as, as we go forward is uh, how this rise of rural small business economic interests that you see in the reopen debate, how is that going to play? Are these people... And, and what I'm seeing a lot on Facebook from some of the from some of the rural conservative folks is they're defiantly going out and doing stuff in public. They're making a big deal about the courage that they're uh, putting out there by going to get their haircut and by you know going in and uh, doing restaurants when they open. And is that going to lead more of those Republicans to want to go out and vote in person in June? Um, and and I'm I'm a little bit terrified at at that uh, just from a public health perspective because I'm going to stay away as far away from uh, the actual voting places as I can. But it's going to be interesting to see how how those all play together with uh, what the Democratic Party and Democratic politicians have put together in terms of mobilizing their voters versus the traditional Republican reliance on money which is going to be absent in the, the, the amounts that, it, that we're used to seeing it in a lot of state legislative races, a lot of local races, because fundraising was put on, a hold, on hold. And the number of legislators who put off fundraising till after this year's session and are now regretting that, um, I think that's going to play a much larger role in who wins and who loses some of these uh, heavily contested races um, than anything that comes out of Washington, D.C. Jen, Jen, jump in here, please. Yeah, just to go back to um, kind of what McConnell's doing and the effects down ballot and the like. Look, what, what I'm hearing from people, whether they're you know usually conservative or not, um, you know wherever you fall on the spectrum – you know, this is affecting everybody um, pretty hard financially. And I think what's going to be important for the people who are in office now, no matter if they're R or D, um, is just how effectively um, or how effective they are in their job. I mean, we've got these aid packages. How are they being administered? I'm going to tell you, I've had I can't even tell you the number of people who have reached out to me um, to complain about the IRS website and they haven't gotten their stimulus money or unemployment claims. Nobody's calling them back um, from, you know, Department of Labor at the, you know, at the state. And understanding that we're facing a situation we've never faced before, I mean, these folks are desperate. And at the end of the day, that's what people really remember and really think about. Um, 
you know, when they are voting to keep somebody in or not. In good times, I'll tell you, it's way more political and way more my team, your team. I'll tell you what, in bad times, when people just want competence, um, how their elected officials act and whether or not they actually did the right thing um, probably matters a lot more. And so, you know, my advice is just do your job, do it well, um, and then kind of everything else comes after that. And from what I've seen, a lot of folks aren't really you know, doing what they were elected to do. Um, and they're kind of following back, falling back into kind of the political, um, you know, back and forth. And, and, you know, I think that's a real mistake. Jim, let me give you the last word before we have to take a break. Uh, what I would, I, I, I would kind of focus, and maybe we can talk uh, about this more on the other side, is uh, like Senator Jordan said, I mean, you've got this, you've got this logistical shift going on. Uh, of course, we've got, we've, you know, you've got the, the unemployment uh, benefit uh, uh, debacle that we're, we're, you know, they're trying to process as, as, as many as fast as they can, but it's just overwhelming uh, the, the uh, bureaucracy that hasn't had to deal with unemployment in, in for Forever. But I would I would I would go back to Todd's uh, point on on the absentee balloting. We've got uh, we've got something like uh, uh, far more than eight hundred thousand absentee ballot requests now uh, that have been mailed into the, to, to either county election officials or the secretary of state's office, and they're not they're not getting processed very quickly. Especially uh, for instance, like in Fulton County, we've always had problems with Fulton County, but Fulton County is it's been it's been hit by the co- by COVID nineteen, and it is uh, you're you're seeing uh, you're seeing some really interesting. Uh, you're, you're, we're almost to the point of uh, of having cast as many ballots by mail now or uh, on on the verge of it as were cast total in the twenty sixteen primary. So that's that's a huge shift. But uh, if you look at the numbers, I think seventy percent are are uh, of the voters requesting them are white. Maybe twenty percent are black, and but but that disparity is hard to read because you don't know how many have been processed and how many have not. Right. right. Let's talk about that when we come back. I've got to get a break in, but we uh, Sam Burmis Dawes gave us some numbers on uh, the absentee ballot requests. And we can talk about those and get the panel to weigh in on how they're reading the tea leaves on what all of that means. Uh, This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Quick program note before we uh, continue with our panel discussion uh, for the rest of this week. We're going to continue to try to balance uh, news of politics, which we know you always want to hear from Political Rewind with news about the coronavirus. And the fact is, those are interchangeable in many cases, as you can hear on the show today. But uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk to three small business owners, people in very different businesses, about how they're responding to the possibility of reopening for business. And uh, then on Wednesday, I'm going to have a conversation with Dr. Ray Kotwicki. He's the chief medical officer of Skyland Trail, which is a nonprofit mental health treatment organization. And we're going to talk about the emotional, psychological, the mental impacts that this is having on a great many people out there. Uh, And on Thursday, we're going to do food banks. We're going to talk to food bank leaders from across the state to talk about food security uh, moving forward. There are people who suggest that the coronavirus will come to an end, but it's going to create a greater need for food than ever before beyond it. And on Friday, 
Uh, we're doing a show by remote out of Savannah. We're going to have uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, former Secretary of State Kathy Cox, talk to us about uh, the election, uh, which has been so much a part of the conversation now and how we see uh, the 2020 primaries unfolding and then the election beyond that. So that's all coming up in the week ahead. Uh, okay, um, so uh, let's talk about that. Andre, Jim Galloway just made this point about the fact that a majority of the people requesting early ballots uh, have been white. The numbers essentially say uh, this. We've had 829, 830,000 people who've applied to vote by mail, which is <laughs> a huge, the number uh, in 2016 was 25,000 Um 42% have applied for Democratic ballots, 55% for Republican uh, ballots, more women than men. Um, and even though more whites than blacks have applied for absentee ballots, um, the fact of the matter is that 92% of the black and Hispanic voters who have applied for the 2020 uh, uh, primary uh, absentee ballot had not applied in the 2016 primary. Do you, what do you read in those tea leaves, Andra? We'll need to wait um, and see kind of how many more uh, absentee ballot applications come in. Um, you know, part of the uh, sort of partisan disparity is related to the fact that uh, racial and ethnic minorities are actually underrepresented in, in, in these applications. Um, I think kind of going back to Todd's point in terms of the resistance about um, uh, Republicans and, 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 and voting by mail, uh, you know, what elites say and what the rank and file are doing are two different things, and I think that that very much needs to kind of, you know, be pointed out here as re uh, Republicans uh, object to voting by mail, especially under these conditions, right? This is something that everybody, you know, um, seems to be fine with, and I think we should point out that, you know, when we talk about concerns about uh, voter fraud, one, thankfully in the United States, that actually really isn't a prevalent problem. And where we have seen issues with um, absentee ballot fraud, it's usually been under conditions of vote harvesting. So we think about what happened in North Carolina um, in 2018. Like, that's a different set, uh, situation than somebody actually filling out an absentee ballot at home and then mailing it in themselves. So, one, I want to wait and see what happens. Um, there could be lots of factors that might explain the partisan disparity in particular. Um, it could very well be that people are looking at competitive uh, down-ballot primaries and focusing less on the presidential race, which has largely been decided. <laughs> there could be Democrats who have also, you know, decided that now that we have a presumptive nominee that there might not be a whole lot of, um, you know, uh, a whole lot of reason to necessarily uh, pull a ballot. And then people, um, you know, are busy and they're thinking about other things because there's a lot – that's going on at this time. But I think that this is actually really a good thing and a good test run to see whether or not we could do this in November if a resurgence kind of forces us to have to be able to do that. Todd, did I see you want to jump in? I want to say that uh, I'm watching these uh, absentee numbers and, and the, the sort of uh, taking a sieve to them to figure out what, what's really going on. But one thing that I want to mention uh, that gives me pause, I'm cautiously optimistic by the Republican uh, apparent lead in this, but uh, part of the, one of the dynamics that as somebody who spent 20 years in direct mail for politics um, that I want to mention is that there is a mail lag um, in the handling of these ballots, and that the Postal Service is in uncharted territory also. And so I can, I can see 
uh, scenarios in which, say, parts of uh, South Fulton that are voter, very voter rich, um, where the local processing offices get swamped. Um, or alternatively, we have to remember that, that these uh, absentee ballot requests go to the local election office. I apologize for the dogs. Um, these absentee ballots go to the <laughs> local offices, and those in Metro Atlanta may be seeing problems with uh, people being sick, uh, with, with poll workers being out sick, or with just dealing with the sheer mass of these mail absentee ballots that they've never dealt with before. Um, and so you may have lags in Metro Atlanta specifically, but also in other metropolitan areas. Um, let me jump in. Where later in the election, we may see some of those uh, Democratic areas catching up in terms of the, uh, the absentee ballot requests. Jen, I want to give you a chance to uh, weigh in on this as well, because we're getting to the point where we're running out of time. Yeah, I mean, the numbers are fascinating. Out of the approximately 830 um, thousand um, folks that have requested, you know, um, absentee ballots. Um, about 550,000 of them did not vote in the 2016 primary or before. So that's really interesting. But even more interesting when you drill down, about 60,000 of the folks that you know, are kind of new voters that have never voted before. And as we know, people who who vote in primaries tend to be, you know, high energy, um, you know high information voters. So that's that's interesting. I will say, though, I'll, I'll, I'll tag on to what Jim said. I mean, the Fulton County numbers show that there is a significant lag in processing. For example, Cobb County shows about 54,000 applications it's processed. Fulton is just um, at 10,000. And so we know that usually Fulton County kind of um, tops the number in terms of the total number of applications. So I think we need to wait before we can read the tea leaves in that on that. And then also, if you look at the various congressional district breakdowns. Um, you see high um, application numbers, of course, in um, two, you know, two congressional districts with really um, hotly contested primaries, one congressional nine with Collins, um, you know, stepping down, and then also congressional 14 with Graves. So I think there's a lot going on there in terms of why you have the high voter the white voter kind of app at this point. Um, I think by the time we get to the end of the week, hopefully Fulton County will have processed a lot more and um, we'll be able to read a lot more from the data. Jim, jump in as we come to a close. Yeah, very, very quickly. Uh, you've got 70% of those who requested ballots, 70% so the, the are white, but only, f uh, but 55% are, 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 have requested GOP ballots. That tells me that you've got a good spike in in white voting on the democratic side and that has got if you if you're if you're republican that's got to worry you i think uh, real quick andre do you uh, uh, i know you were waiting for more data and you're data driven but that seems uh, uh, like an interesting conclusion you've got about 10 seconds to deal with that it's a testable question so it's something that i'll monitor but it wasn't something that i had paid attention to beforehand so I love, that's why we love having Andre Gillespie on this show, because she is testing data at all times. Look, that's it for uh, Political Rewind uh, today. It was great having these panelists here. I know we don't have the same kind of freewheeling conversations we do when we're all in the studio, but that doesn't make what you have to tell us, panelists, 
any less provocative, smart, and interesting. So thanks for joining us, and thank you out there for being part of Political Rewind today. See you again tomorrow.